Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. Joining me today, as always, is the worldly Robert Domena. Thank you. Today, we have a great conversation with <clears throat> Tamar. And so Tamar is an art historian turned finance administrator turned independent radio producer. She worked for years as an art historian and instructor at an adjunct lecturer and an adjunct lecturer at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Today, we talked about, <clears throat> sorry, today we talked about the cultural significance of art, some of our favorite pieces of art around the world. We define what makes art special. And I was personally educated on why modern art uh, you know, like the scribbles and the paint drips is, are so expensive. And what uh, it actually it means, why it's important, how it. Yes. Yeah. How it actually it was a, is art. Yes. Yeah. It was a great conversation and uh, we really enjoyed it. It, it. it didn't necessarily completely align with travel. So bear with us, but it was, th there are obviously tons of connections between culture and art and travel and so, and people uh, most importantly. So it ended up being a really, really, really fun conversation. Yeah. And uh, we did get into NFTs. We did yeah, get into NFTs at the end. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. So we talked about a lot. Um, today's travel tip, always bring a lock for your bags. So I actually have padlocks that stay on my travel backpacks, even when I'm not using them. If I don't even travel that year, that lock does not come off of my bag. And this way, if you leave your bag in your hotel, your Airbnb, you can lock certain things in the bag. Um, I, I lock them as I travel. It's ideal if you get the locks that are TSA approved, meaning TSA have the keys to unopen them. Um, if they, if you want to keep them on your luggage, that's checked, but I highly recommend doing that. I lock my bags, even as I walk around just so no one can open things. And, and I find it pretty, pretty important. Uh, tip. yeah, tip. yeah. Thank you. Uh, lastly, uh, before we get into the conversation, check out some of the cool things we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page. And once you download it, you have it forever and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be planned efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yeah. And now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. 
You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or a travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Tamara, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. We're going to talk to you a little bit today about your podcast, The Lonely Palette. And it's uh, basically talking about art and the culture of art and the history of it. So as we do with all of our guests, please give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into the podcast and how you got into art. Sure. Um, well, it's actually, it would be the other way around. I got into art first and then podcasting second, um, both chronologically given, you know, when podcasting boomed. Um, <laughs> but just also, uh, my mom is an artist. I grew up in a, in a home that was just covered with art, you know, kind of hung on the, <laughs> hung on the wall salon style. Um, and I thought I was going to be a, a an artist myself. That was always kind of my, like my talent as a kid that my parents would kind of show off. And, uh, when I got to college, um, I wasn't able to get into the studio art classes. They were first come first serve. I was an enormous university. I went to the university of Toronto. And so I took an art history course as a way of just kind of, you know, biding my time until I could get into the studio art courses. And I realized that that art history was actually, I was just better at it. I, I could bring more to the table. It was more kind of where my, my comfort and my skills lay. Um, I was able to kind of render something on a piece of paper, but I don't think I really brought a whole lot of creativity or, or my own kind of personal um, thoughtfulness to rendering something to kind of making art it's just not the way that my brain worked you know i see the way that my mom's brain works and the way that my mind does and it's different um but what i did really love was history humanity storytelling you know the way that people use art to describe their moment that was really kind of that kind of sparked something really exciting in me. And so I ended up taking art history. I ended up majoring in it and then getting a master's in it. Um, I did end up taking a few studio art courses, but they didn't go very well. <laughs> I'd already moved moved past that or laterally moved away from it. Um, and so I graduated uh, from my master's in 2008, and that was a bad time to have an arts degree uh, and try to get a job. So uh, I did some other stuff, but I I discovered, uh, you know, the whole time I loved radio. I loved NPR. I was listening to, you know, This American Life every week. And, and I met some radio producers and had the best conversations of my life, you know, with other people who were also similarly interested in storytelling and why you know, their stories are the product of their lived lives in a way that felt very similar to art, actually. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, I want to be a radio producer. 
And then uh, the podcast boom was like a blessing and a curse because it made this niche thing that, you know, was competitive, but like it was possible to get in. <laughs> like everything that was established became super competitive. But then there was also this incredible sense of opening up and collaboration and democratic audio making. And so I put the two together and I launched my own art history podcast. And it's it's been pretty successful. And it's kind of, you know, I've, I've actually been able to turn it into my career. Yeah, that's amazing. That Yeah, that is amazing. Art history in particular is something that I'm also really into. And I want to give our listeners sort of uh, context for how we ended up getting you on. Because some people may be thinking, why are you here? Because we are a travel <laughs> podcast after all. I'm uh, curious myself. Yeah. So uh, I, I, was, I am reading, I'm almost done, uh, a book called The Monuments Men. Are you familiar with it? I've heard of it. And there's a movie, right? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen the movie George yet. George Clooney? Yes, I know yeah. it's like a decade-old movie. I have not seen the movie yet. So I'm reading this, this Monuments Men book, and it is about museum cur curators, uh, I think some archaeologists, um, who stepped up to go to World War II, to fight in World War II in Europe, specifically to find and save Europe's most treasured art. Now, mm -hmm. we're talking the art that was stored in France, in Belgium, in Poland, in Holland prior to the Nazi invasion. Uh, these men risked their lives. Some of them lost their lives. And they found the most, uh, some of the most precious pieces of art in salt mines, in castles, stored mm -hmm. anywhere. So I don't know if you knew this, but Hitler was like a huge uh, art fanatic. And his idea for... I do. And we should yeah, talk yeah. about that. But yes. yeah. Yeah, so his idea for Germany was to create the world's best art museum, sort of mocking right. or uh, imitating Florence in Linz, Germany. He wanted to create the museum there. And he was, prior to invading and starting World War II, he had scouts all over Europe writing down, taking inventory of all of Europe's most treasured pieces of art. Mm -hmm. So when he invaded, he knew exactly where to go, what to get, and, and how to move it. So this was a lot of World War II was around art. In his will, he talked about art. And I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know this. So... So I'm reading the book and I'm thinking this is this is really interesting. This art not only has uh, deep history to the culture that created it and the ancestors of, the, of of Europe, but now it has like this incredible history of how it was traveled and transferred hands through World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I just became fascinated with that story. And so... I did a little digging and I found you, and <laughs> and 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 I and I wanted to reach out to you because uh, because of your success your successful art podcast. Um, I wanted to talk to somebody specifically how you mention art history, um, mm -hmm. and that's sort of and that's sort of where we are. That's how we got. Yeah. On. Well, I uh, let me just say that uh, I have an episode, uh, episode nine, which is all about uh, it's it's ostensibly about um, German expressionism, and uh, it's Ernst, Ernst Ludwig. Kirshner's uh, reclining nude. But the episode actually talks about why, you know, first kind of how you look at a painting like this, and it makes you really feel something, you know, all the way down to your toes. And that's kind of what expressionism does is it, you know, you kind of feel the heat of this painting. Um, but also why Kirshner was labeled a degenerate artist by the Nazis and talks about how the degenerate art exhibition as it was put up against the great German art exhibition. So Hitler had, uh, it wasn't really Hitler, honestly, it was Goebbels. I mean, he was the, you know, the they say yeah. that 
And I said it's in the episode, you know, that that propaganda was kind of the, the one war that Hitler won. Yes. Um, but you had uh, simul- simultaneously, he uh, looted and sacked the museums around Europe for what was considered modern and therefore degenerate art. And so much of this art was really speaking to its own moment and kind of holding up a mirror to its moment. And the Nazis couldn't have that, you know? I mean, you have this this quote-unquote thousand-year Reich, which at the time was only four years old. You know, there was this belief that they were creating something that had always been. Um, and then to have artists in their moment responding to the pain of their moment and, you know, the the humiliation kind of post-World War One and in the Weimar period, you had artists who were really you know, painting from their guts and, and their souls. And because that was so powerful as a viewer to see and what it kind of does to you to see an expressionist painting, that's exactly why they had to go. You know, they had to be labeled degenerate. And there was a whole exhibition in 1937 where they took these paintings. You know, they didn't just take them and like burn them. They took them and they put them up in an exhibition but they were put up in an enormously haphazard, you know, really disturbing, unsettling way. You know, some of them were deliberately crooked and they were kind of, they were meant to overwhelm. And so you had these paintings that already rouse a lot in a viewer, hung in a way that make them kind of need to push it away. And they invited visitors to kind of come and laugh, basically, and say, look at these degenerates, look at everything you're feeling push it outwards on them, you know, and they weren't just Jewish artists. It was really any modern artist, including Kirshner. Yeah. Anyway, simultaneously, you had the great German art exhibition, which was supposed to be kind of the antidote to coming out of the degenerate art exhibition. And it was awful. Like nobody went. It was this like really terrible simulacrum of what ancient Greco-Roman sculpture was supposed to look like. And it was just empty. It was totally like it was the art was empty and soulless and the halls were empty. Nobody went. And so it's a really interesting, um, you know, like art is always speaking to its current moment, even if it's attempting to tap into something that is ostensibly a thousand years old. Um, And so, so yes, this is, (laughs) um, there's a whole episode on this. Yeah, I, I do. I, th- I think art is interesting. And one of the, I mean, Bob and I found each other through an engineering firm, but my background's in landscape architecture. And as part of that, I had to study uh, basically the history of landscape architecture, which is closely related to art and geography. And I remember mm-hmm. in undergrad learning about Thomas Cole's, uh, the... Uh, Oxbow? No, his, it's a series oh. <laughs> called Course of Empire. And it's a five-part painting that kind of looks at the settling of the Americas and the basically how uh, unhuman (laughs) the course of the settlement was. And it talks, I think there's the savage state, the Arcadian or pastoral state, the consummation of empire, destruction, and then the last piece is desolation. Hmm. And it's really just this narrative on how uh, kind of brutal the settlement of the Americas were. And it's Mm -hmm. really interesting. And this took, he painted this over the course of three or four years and 
paintings in general are basically a way to read history a different way. And yeah. we've talked on this podcast and we've had several episodes on how history is extremely important and relevant to current travel because it sure. gives you more context and gives you more insight onto where you are and the people that are there now. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually, I, I, I want to read a quick quote from, so this is the British monuments man, as he was called. His name's Ronald Balfour. And he was one of the guys responsible for searching for all this art. And I love how he, uh, what he said here, because he essentially, I should say, so a criticism of the monuments man was, what are you going, why are you going and fighting and dying for art? What's the point? Like, you know, we have cities burning, we have people dying, we have extermination camps and, and who cares, essentially? Let's focus on people only. And uh, what he said was that we do not want to destroy unnecessarily what men spent so much time and care and skill in making. For these examples of craftsmanship tell us so much about our ancestors. If these things are lost or broken or destroyed, we lose a valuable part of our knowledge about our forefathers. No age lives entirely alone. Every civilization is formed not merely by its own achievements, but by what it has inherited from the past. If these things are destroyed, we have lost a part of our past and we shall be poorer for it. Mm. And I loved it. I think it's such yeah. a, you know. It, it... Well, and, and what strikes me too is it's not just doing the service to, for the people who made the art, but for all of the people who have preserved it since. And I think that's why, you know, anybody who who makes sure to put different museums on their bucket lists when they go to different cities, you know, museums are complicated places. And, you know, they're always going to a museum's mission is always first and foremost about being a steward for these objects. It's always first and foremost about protecting them. Secondary is about educating others about them. And more and more, and especially since I came into the field like 15, God, almost 20 years ago, you know, the way that, um, you know, you want to think that as a museum educator or as an educator uh, on art, that that really is kind of the, the first and foremost thing, but it's not. It's about keeping these, these objects safe and alive so that they can be passed on and that people... Granted, you need to know what you're seeing. You know, it's like, what's the point of a book if you don't know how to read mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. But you do appreciate that the time and and effort and energy that goes into keeping these objects alive and safe is really, really important. Um, and so, you know, we we do. I I so I I had. Um, an opportunity to be interviewed for NPR a couple of years ago. And I was met with the question of, you know, we're in a pretty dicey political moment. Why should we care about art? You know, like, why am I even kind of wasting my time on you? And it was meant to be kind of funny, you know, like it was meant to poke fun at the idea that everybody took an art history course and we've all got like our drool stains on our, <laughs> you know, like on our notes, like, you know, everybody's taken art history and been bored by it. So, you know, y you're going to make it interesting for me, you know, dance clown. Mm -hmm. And, and what was so kind of misguided about the framing of that question is the idea that you can't look to art 
at any given point, uh, at any given moment and say, you are speaking to your audience in the moment that this work was created. You are telling us the story about people who are experiencing its moment in time and that there's incredible value to that and that you can extrapolate that you know, leave the art, the kind of idea that art is behind a velvet rope and only for the elite and actually say, well, wait a minute, artists were everyone and I'm everyone, <laughs> you know, like maybe I can actually really extrapolate something of value from this object if I give myself the opportunity, you know, mm -hmm. if I do take the time to learn why it mattered and it really does kind of save art from from dusty museums and makes it incredibly relevant to any given lived moment. Yeah. One of the best things that I did by accident was in Rome, uh, which is obviously heavy with art. Uh, I, I spent my entire week there. And at the end of the week, the last day, we went to the Capitol Museum. And uh, as we enter the Capitol Museum, it's filled, filled with art and sculptures and, and everything you would picture uh, would be there from Rome. But one thing I found fascinating was because we saved it for last, we had already seen all of the major archaeological sites and had a, you know, relatively good understanding of what went on in Rome. And I, I'm a kind of a, I like Roman history, so I already kind of had that going to there. But because we saved it for the last day, we're now exploring these halls and looking at these paintings. And we sort of have the context of the location of some things. We know uh, generally we can see some of the architecture that we saw in real life, the ruins depicted in certain paintings. And putting it at, right at the end, on the very last day, really kind of finished it all for us mm -hmm. and gave us a picture, literally, of, of what we were enjoying the week prior. And I really liked doing it like that. My wife and I love museums, but I kind of, I think because of that experience, I'm now, I might save at least one of them for the end. Sort of do everything well, and see everything and walk around and then spend that last day sort of Let me Let me through ask this picture. question. Would sure. you have, would it have made your experience of the archaeologist archaeological sites different if you had seen the paintings first yeah i i and being able think... to visualize what they look like yeah i mean i guess you could go that route it depends on the type of brain you have i liked the i, I liked getting it at the end uh, i don't know if i would have enjoyed art as much without having seen it with my own eyes and kind of have the story because we went on different tours and so um we had this mental painting created and then to see the actual artist who who went through and did it and, and documented the renaissance and the transfer of power of rome and the fall of rome uh the rise of christianity all of these things uh was pretty cool i like i liked it at the end yeah yeah i think too people underestimate where they think that there's something wrong with the fact that everybody is more comfortable with what they're familiar with and that includes if you see a painting in real life that you've only read about, you know, you finally say, let's, let's use like the, the obvious example and you go see the Mona Lisa, you know, there is, you're under no expectation and no, um, you know, like you don't have to appreciate every painting at the Louvre to go and have a powerful experience seeing the Mona Lisa in person. And they know it, you know, I mean, it's, it's a business too. And, you know, there are signs all over the Louvre that say the Mona Lisa, you know, that away. <laughs> but when you actually, you know, and, and you can always have the conversation with somebody who was really moved by seeing the Mona Lisa in person and someone else who was like, oh, it was so small. It's just a, you know, who it's really disappointing. Right. Um, 
But the idea that you go somewhere in order to kind of see the thing that you know that you're kind of looking forward to seeing or that you know something about already, and you kind of make a beeline towards this painting and you don't look at the others, but you go to that one, that's totally okay. You know, like that's, and, and I think that, you know, even though people travel, I know for me, I can only say for myself, you know, I travel to go on an adventure, but you do feel kind of held by what's familiar and that buoys you, you know, it's like that makes you want to explore more because you've already spent some time with something that you knew that you wanted to see and that you know something about. Maybe you can like tell somebody next to you, it's like, oh, this is actually why this painting matters. And you know, I think that there's something really to that. And that doesn't mean that you're not adventurous enough. I think it's really human nature to be drawn to something that you already know a little bit about. Absolutely. And I think I, I want to ask this question because I have always gone to museums with usually with maybe one or two items in mind. But I think most of the time I go to museums, it is just as like a landmark. And then I feel like I need to see everything in the museum. And if I don't see everything in the museum, then it was a bust of a trip. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if it's just worthwhile to break that trip up, even if you're only in that destination that one time, like only if you're only in the Louvre once in 10 years, pick a few items in there rather than feeling like you have to see everything mm -hmm. because I think that would have made my trip. I've been to the, I've been to the loop once Bob and I were there in October, but we didn't actually go in, but I feel like just the scale and the size of the Louvre is sometimes overwhelming. And if you just pick every like time it's way, overwhelming. Yeah. Every, every time. time there's so much. So if you yeah. pick a few items that you actually want to learn about, get the history, get, and basically the point of this, uh, <laughs> long winded, talk is that have intent when you go to a museum mm -hmm. and yes don't just like have the goal to see everything be intentional about what you see so that's one way to do it that is one perfectly um i, I can't think of any other word than Except cromulent yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, what is that cromulent cromulent <laughs> Oh, it's from a Simpsons episode. Anyway, um, but it, it's <laughs> like the perfect it. word word that doesn't actually mean anything. Um, but yes, acceptable. Like that's a, a, a totally good way to, to go about a museum experience. Another way, um, which is equally acceptable, is to do the exact opposite and let yourself float around and be, you know, see what speaks to you. And don't worry if nothing does, but something might. I actually had a, a very cool experience. You know, I, I this is, you know, supposed to be my my area of expertise, but I don't know every artist. And so I'll, I'll, I was walking around the Met in New York with a friend of mine um, a couple of years ago when I was pregnant. And there was a painting, uh, I don't even remember who it was by, uh, but it it was similar. To, if any of your listeners are familiar with Robert Motherwell, or or you know, kind of a a more um, post New York school abstract expressionist, uh, you know, playing with with not just shapes, but kind of the materiality of the art, um, the materiality of the paint, and this painting was an artist that I really wasn't familiar with, but the painting itself just looked like a sonogram. 
And it had that kind of, it was just the way that the paint was just kind of smeared a little bit on the canvas and it was mostly black and white. And I looked at it and I just was so drawn to it. And I took a picture of it and I was like looking at the picture afterwards and just thinking like, oh, it's, it, it feels like a sonogram. It's just kind of the, the headspace that I'm at right yeah. now. And, you know, like that's not usually the way that I go through museums. I try to go through and find the paintings that I recognize that I can, you know, lecture about to whoever's with me. And that's usually why they bring me. And so, you know, it <laughs> felt really nice to be kind of released from the the shackles of like expectation and mm. let art do what art can be really good at, which is just kind of speaking to you on a more soul level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have uh, one to two favorite pieces of art that you enjoy? And uh, bonus points, if you can relate them to travel in some way. <laughs> bonus? What are we, what are we Well, <laughs> none of them are where I live, so that... There you actually, go. There you go. <laughs> um, but I'm in a different city. I So I, I spent most of my, my childhood and adult life in Boston. And so the Boston Museum of Fine Arts is, it was my home base, and I got to know it really, really, really well. Um, and to the point where when I went to other museums and other cities and other countries, you know, I would get drawn to other things. And, you know, that wasn't very kind to my wonderful MFA. <laughs> um, but now I live in Cleveland and the Cleveland Museum of Art is exceptional. And I never knew that. I didn't realize that it was such a world-class museum, but uh, the Cleveland Museum of Art, the Detroit uh, Institute of Art, I think that's what it's called, um, and of course, uh, the Chicago Institute of Art, you know, like the Art Institute of Chicago are all museums that were that were funded and collected um, by like the, the Rockefellers, you know, by mm -hmm. the, the captains of industry in mid 20th century. And so where the MFA in Boston has an exceptional um, New England collection and kind of American Impressionism and, and earlier, you know, incredible colonial art. It's the Midwest that actually has their talons in the modern art of the period. Um, and so you would never know until you came here. I mean, you might know the Art Institute because Chicago is such a big museum, but like you wouldn't know that that around the Midwest you have these incredible museums for modern, um, if that's what you're interested in. Cool. Yeah, I was at the um, Art Institute in Chicago a few years ago, and it is, I didn't realize how big it was. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, I would say that a couple of my favorite, ob I'll, I'll give you an one of my favorite objects, but also one of my favorite museums. Um, and if you've been to uh, SFMOMA, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, there are two panels and I actually have an episode on them. It's episode 48 and they're Anselm Kiefer's uh, enormous panels. One is called Margareta and the other is Shulamit. And if you can find yourself alone in the gallery with these two panels, you will have lived. <laughs> hmm. um, I think that it's very easy. You know, it's like uh, in my episode on the Mona Lisa, I kind of do a little 
you know, fantasy uh, idealization of the guard at the end of the day after everyone has left and he actually gets <laughs> some time alone with this painting and how, you know, he probably doesn't even care anymore. But there is that, you know, someone does get to be alone with that painting every day. And that's a rare and powerful and, and, you know, soulful experience, or it isn't, you know, or it's just somebody doing their job and they don't care anymore. But uh, being alone in the, in the gallery at SF MoMA with these Anselm Kiefer panels, you just kind of fall into them. They're huge, huge, huge paintings. Um, they're thickly layered. Uh, even if you don't know what they're about, you can have a very powerful moment just kind of falling into them. If you do know what they're about, then uh, you will connect with their... They're based on a poem that was written by a Holocaust survivor and kind of attempting to understand Kiefer is German. He was born in 1945. You know, how to kind of reach across basically and like touch fingers with someone else whose culture had been destroyed, basically, mm -hmm. you know, that a kind of that, that Judaism or Jewishness post World War II, but also Germanness post World War II, both need to be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that with these materials? And, and these paintings are both just material, material, material. And so just kind of having, and because they're so big, you, you just kind of sit in, in wonder and just let yourself be dwarfed by them. And it's an incredibly powerful experience. Um, and on the complete flip side, actually, if you've ever gone to the Noya Gallery in New York, it is a small, gorgeous, well-appointed, I mean, it's basically a mansion that has been turned into kind of the museum for turn of the century Viennese art. And so you'll see a lot of Klimt and Egon Schiele and artists that were just also incredibly like beautiful and sumptuous, but, but psychologically charged. Um, you know, Klimt and, and Schiele, also I have episodes on them. Um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily put the two together and think that they are from the same moment. And they're not really. One is, you know, Klimt is kind of the the generation before Sheila. Sheila takes it to a different place. But you just also get a lot of like quiet time with these either gorgeous, gorgeous paintings or kind of incredibly intimate, small drawings. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I guess I just like to be alone. <laughs> I like to be alone in museums. And let the the work, yeah, kind of be able to, to form my own relationship with it. You know, it's like the difference between listening to like, you know, listening to you two, like on your headphones versus being at a concert. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you just don't want to share something that moves you and, you know, say what you will about you two. But like, you know, sometimes you just want them to sing only to you. And not to a crowd of 50,000 people. Um, have you, there was a study recently and I, I was trying to find it, but I couldn't recall the exact title of it, but they essentially did a study of the size of images and the impact it has on 
your memory making. And mm. they actually found that bigger is better. So the bigger, <laughs> the bigger and I think who that's is what they? they? That's, <laughs> that's what, what I was trying know. to find because I, <laughs> I wanted to see who the actual study was done by. But I think it was um, a university in the U.S. And they had found that the bigger the image is, even related to like digital screens, it made a bigger impact and had more emotion connected to it than a smaller image. Hmm. Well, look, I mean, obviously, if you're going to be like hit across the face with a frying pan, you know, a bigger one is going to hit you harder. But I do think that you might not realize that something small has had an impact on you until you can't get it out of your head. And so maybe you stand in front of, you know, an enormous, you know, you, you stand in front of Picasso's Guernica and you are, you know, if, if it so speaks to you that way, you're absolutely overwhelmed by the pain that this artist is depicting on a canvas. But it can also be incredibly powerful to not necessarily feel like the, feel the frying pan, mm -hmm. but realize that something so small and intimate like a line drawing by Egon Schiele that you're seeing in a small frame, you know, very gently and intimately on the wall, that you walk away from that and you feel like that artist was a person and that the, the image being captured was really deeply felt and human and relatable. And so you come back to it and you think, you know, that person lived, you know, I live. There's a connection. There is kind of a touching fingers across time. And you don't realize until you kind of feel your finger felt <laughs> that, you know, that you've, that you've really kind of connected to something that you didn't think you'd connect to. You know, sometimes you feel that kind of wonder all at once. And sometimes you feel that quieter resonance later on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so Rome for me had the biggest impact on, <clears throat> on art for me and, and sort of opening the door to, uh, to, to art. But I'm curious and I'm, I'm going to maybe sound like an art dummy here. Uh, no art a, dummies, just people a, who haven't listened to my podcast yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little easier for me to see, I guess, the significance of art uh, when it's a Renaissance painting or it's a mm -hmm. Michelangelo sculpture, where I start to get uh, confused, and I'm hoping you can clarify this for me, are, I guess, the more modern art paintings where it's like a splat. And, you know, the classic thing is, oh, my kid can do that. Mm -hmm. Why is it selling for $3 million? My my toddler can make that same exact thing. Uh, are you referring to Jackson Pollock? <laughs> uh, I, I, there, was an, there was an article that I read maybe a month ago, maybe a few months ago now, where a guy, I, there were, a couple was getting divorced, and some of the paintings on the wall were going for, like, several million dollars. Uh millions um upon millions of dollars and so i'm like who's 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 the artist that has several of these paintings going for this much money and what do they look like so i googled them and some of them are just you know lines and i'm going to pull up the artist so we can actually break it down okay. and maybe maybe you have information on them and, and essentially i'm looking for enlightenment i want you to <laughs> educate me on why uh or what it is that i'm missing because i'm sure it is i'm sure i'm missing something i, I feel very confident in that 
Uh, I'm going to Google it. Um, okay. Divorce. Well, while you're Googling it, let me just say that art and the art market are two different things. They're okay. loosely connected. So the art market is going to take the business side and say, you know, much like real estate, what are people willing to pay, especially when they feel like this should be so valuable? You know, it's like, why do so many people line up to see the Mona Lisa and not equally important paintings that are next? It's, you know, th those are the ones that they like back into because they're trying to take the perfect picture of the Mona Lisa. Uh -huh. Like, they don't really, you know, so, so you don't necessarily, you know, the art market is thus divorced from actually having knowledge of the high Italian Renaissance and why this or that painting is equally valuable in the eyes of an art historian. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Um, did you find the, the artist? Yes. So, so this couple, uh, yeah. are, they, they, were, they got divorced. Their art collection ended up being uh, appraised at $676 million. Nice. So that's their art collection. Yeah. I mean, imagine what these people are worth. Uh, I mean, so, Beyonce and Jay-Z are still together, right? So it's not them. <laughs> no, it's not them. But, I mean, was it I Kim have, and Kanye? It is. Uh, no, do you think they have 600? I, I don't think they can. Probably. <laughs> you think I don't that? know. Uh, so he's a, real, he's a New York City real estate developer, Harry yeah. Macklow and his wife, Linda. So anyway, so their, their total art collection is worth $676 million. One painting by this person named Cy Twombly. Oh, sure. Uh, okay. Yeah. It, it went, it it's was scribbled. sold for $59 million. So yeah. it's an untitled piece of work. And I love drawing. I draw with my toddler. And it, it, it it's not an incorrect <laughs> statement. It's yeah. not incorrect to say that. <clears throat> Like, and, and so yeah. this is where uh, I would love to be enlightened because I don't want to be those people who just say it because they're ignorant. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what am I missing? <laughs> okay. Well, you just asked a mouthful. Okay. Um, <laughs> we, uh, Elliot, Elliot, before she starts uh, answering, look okay. up Cy Twombly so you have an idea of <laughs> right. what I'm talking about here. And so you're familiar with Cy Twombly? I am. Um, is it I've, a man or a woman? A man. Okay. Um, I actually don't know that much about Cy Twombly, and I've, okay. I've been meaning to do an episode on him just so I can learn more. Um, what I will say is that – so we have this larger idea that art is worth money, you know, that, that people will collect and make the right bets – you know, like they're making on NFTs and crypto right now, right. to be honest. I mean, it's always later. about making a bet um, that society is going to decide that this or that artist is worth money and another artist is not. That is the, you know, and then they die and then they're, you know, then their their stock rises and, you know, because suddenly it becomes this scarcity you know, that an artist only creates X amount of paintings. And so therefore, you know, to own one has a specific kind of value. You know, I, I am no economist, so I wouldn't be able to speak anymore, <laughs> like, academically to that. But, you know, there's definitely an idea that, you know, I, I can't imagine that this real estate guy is like the most like soulful fellow in the world and that this art really speaks to him but maybe you know who am i to i don't know the guy you yeah. know i mean if you have that much art it's probably you you probably care um 
But why then should any art be so valuable? That's actually, I think, a more interesting question. Um, and why do some artists manage to put their finger on the pulse of a moment better than others? You know, like that's, Banksy. that's, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Twombly was, was in a, a movement because the other thing that's so frustrating, if you don't know anything about art, which most people don't, when I say, you know, art, like the, like the canon, you know, art history, um, is that so much of this art is responding to itself. So you have all of these movements that are responding to each other. So you are completely forgiven for not understanding why the idea of the free line, you know, why a line on a canvas has been so liberated from where it was that this kind of painting is saying something really radical and powerful to the very specific audience it was speaking to. So if you are going to move through the 20th century and where, you know, first we, we were talking at, at the beginning about expressionism and German expressionism and the way that people were feeling so much from artists who were really painting their moment, who were really painting life lived in real time. That was a, a specifically late 19th, early 20th century um radical development in art because before that you know you you would recognize biblical scenes allegorical scenes mythological scenes you know even if they were kind of speaking to their moment in the subtext they were still pulling from the bible they were pulling from mythology to you know that was the art that that people saw and when the cameras developed in the 1830s when you start to have people actually capturing their life being lived in real time and the technology changes the the uh, media change, you know, the pencil, you know, pencils changed, you know, uh, paint changed in tubes, you could take it outside and, and paint the world as it is being lived. You know, all of this changes in the middle of the 19th century. And from then it's like a bullet train where artists are starting to experiment more and more and more with this liberated style, liberated subject matter, a liberated brushstroke. You don't have to finish your painting. You don't have to finish the canvas to kind of get your statement out there. And when art starts to, to teeter towards abstraction and you don't even have to have the painting be about a thing, it can be about an idea. And if we've already completely abandoned the idea that a painting has to be a window onto the world, which was a very Renaissance idea, that you paint something with such accuracy that it's like looking out a window, once that's gone because of the camera, um, this newly liberated canvas becomes about a canvas. So like, why not let it be flat? Why not let it be about the materiality of the canvas itself? So you start having artists playing with materials and saying, okay, well, this color is doing something really powerful, or this line is doing something really powerful. And so you have this kind of pendulum going back and forth in the 20th century of one movement saying, 
color is the most important thing. And then someone else says, well, what happens if we take away the color? What then? You know, what if we focus on line? Well, what, what then if the line uh, goes in this direction or that direction? And, you know, if, if that's your jam, cool. You know, then there's a lot to follow there and unpack there. If you are expecting a Dutch still life and you come upon a Cy Twombly, you can say, well, what the hell? You know, mm -hmm. like I, I thought art was supposed to be X. And you're missing, you know, 400 years. I mean, I don't think anybody <laughs> expects like a, a Dutch 17th century still life and gets the Cy Twombly. But like, if you miss those connections being made in the 20th century, then you're going to look at something that comes out in the 1950s and 60s and say, how did we get here and see it as a loss? You know, see mm -hmm. the fidelity to painting an object perfectly as a loss. And if you choose not to see art that way, but see it instead as an evolution of artists who are playing with optics, playing with what it means to render your own experience on a canvas, sometimes there are no words, you know, sometimes painting a war in its existence exactness doesn't really get to like the heart of what it felt like to live through it sometimes that can only be said through an abstract like you know on mm -hmm. the canvas and you know there were really interesting responses to art after world war one where there was just a, a kind of zombified like what did we just live through nothing makes sense anymore so so maybe art doesn't have to make sense anymore and you have the dadaists who who like engaged in nonsense and that was kind of their art was that it was nonsensical and again you come to that and you're like what the hell like this isn't <laughs> how is this art but if you think of it as part of a larger societal um creative act to understand the world that we live in, then that no longer has to be a window onto the world. It can instead be kind of a window into someone's soul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you forgive that evolution and or like you go with it. You say, okay, I'm going to appreciate that this, you know, that Cy Twombly is responding to a very specific kind of painting and that artists who are interested in drawing and what is gained and lost by focusing on drawing instead of painting. And I know that without, again, knowing very much about Twombly and, and you're, you're making me want to go and research him. So I'm, I'm talking a little bit, um, it's going to be a new episode <laughs> out of my butt. The lonely palette. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I know that he, he would draw something and I know he would erase it and that there, uh, the act of erasing and being able to see that, on a canvas also has its like that tells a story of its of its mm -hmm. own mm -hmm. too and seeing the artist's hand also is a very powerful thing that was kind of made famous by Jackson Pollock because he you know you look at a Pollock and you are seeing the action you are seeing paint that has been thrown and if you follow you know, the zoop of that paint back onto the can or the paintbrush or like the stick that he used, you travel all the way back up his arm and suddenly you're feeling, you know, that kinesthetic experience of, of the artist 
making the art and then you are with him and that becomes incredibly expressionistic and really powerful and very subjective and that story being told you know uh, Twombly does that too where it's like you're feeling the energy of that scribble that's yeah thank you You I mean 53 million dollars though like (laughs) right right well it's like the hundred twenty thousand dollar banana taped to a wall well that was a joke like that's the thing too right like wasn't that wasn't it a joke it really did sell. I I think it was done as a joke, wasn't it? Yeah. So, and then it, it, it actually did sell for uh, an insane amount of money, but maybe someone bought yeah. it. I don't know the story of it. Maybe someone bought it. I mean, Marcel were- Duchamp's urinal was also kind of a joke. But then once something becomes... Once someone um, gives it value. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. once people decide that that joke was actually really profound, it becomes very serious. Well, and like an NFT now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to. I don't understand. Well, that. let's. We can. We can maybe. I don't want to talk about NFTs for more than like a minute. But let's. And let's wait. Save it for the end. I don't have like more of more than like a minute's worth that's, to say about NFTs anyway. Yeah. I don't get them. Like I. Yeah. But I don't hate them. I don't know yet. So I have a philosophy on them that's positive. I have. I have an optimistic outlook on them. I, mm-hmm. I, but I don't know much. But let's let's save it. I want to tie this to travel specifically, just so anybody okay. listening can say that. You didn't talk about travel and you're the traveler's blueprint. Even though <laughs> even though I want to make the statement now, art, history, travel, culture, I mean, they're all working so in one connected. sphere, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to discuss some of your either your favorite or, or places that you recommend because there are landmarks that are that, that are art. And some mm-hmm. of the most sought after landmarks are sculptures of some kind or or paintings, do you have any recommendations that you've personally seen, a sculpture or painting that you think people should absolutely travel to, they should put it on their bucket list, uh, or some that you haven't been to that are actually just still sitting on your bucket list? Um, I think that instead of necessarily like naming locations, one thing that I'm always really struck by is I I just did an episode on memorials and memorials can be anywhere. They can be in really unexpected places. A lot of times you kind of happen upon them in your travels and you don't realize until you look around and you see, you know, this piece of iron sticking out of the earth or, you know, this plaque somewhere that's, you know, Roman Mars from 99% Invisible has, has that that saying, you know, always read the plaque, like take the time, read the plaque and recognize that where you are is someplace that meant something to somebody. Um, And memorials can have, memorials in particular, you know, sometimes a memorial will be to something where history didn't happen there. It's just where the memorial was built, but other times it'll be where it happened. And there's, a really, you know, it's like suddenly you're on hallowed ground where before you were just in a field. And taking the time to kind of really stop and read the plaque, or if you pass a memorial or if you pass a memorial museum, you know, it's tempting to think that it might be boring, you know, that that whatever you learn you know, or that, that it's about learning something like, mm-hmm. you know, great, I'm going to learn something. That's not why I go on vacation. But <laughs> you'd be surprised how much taking the time to actually like let 
the space that you're in become sanctified is like just makes your trip better you know it it's the stuff that you didn't plan for and that you just stumble across mm -hmm. and um you know the uh i lived in berlin for a year after grad school after college before grad school and i found that like that happens to be a city in particular that is just full of memorials that are really I don't know if gentle is the right word, but they just, they're quiet. You know, you're just surrounded by, because, you know, that's a city that has seen a lot of death. And so um, there are places that, that keep the bullet holes in the walls, you know, where they choose not to rebuild something, or they show you that history really did happen there. Or you walk across you know you're just walking on cobblestones and you come across little gold ones in the stones and they're actually called stumbling stones and you look down and you see that you're they usually have them in front of different houses like different apartment complexes and these gold stones in the street or in you know in the sidewalk will say the names of of Jews who lived there and where they were deported to and and the year that they died and so you just you know you don't have to see them but if you look for them they're everywhere and it's a really interesting way to experience a city because you'll see one but then if you look up there's like a Starbucks in front of you <laughs> you know it's like you it lets the past and the present converge in a surprisingly effective, authentic way. Um, and so I just like, I, I really get a lot of, I mean, pleasure is the wrong word, but like, I really, I, I'm always moved by coming across uh, memorials and plaques wherever I am um, I and that. taking the time to read them. Yeah, I love that. My, my wife and I are, are plaque readers. We can, <laughs> we can call them that. So, and, and she really actually does go out of her way to read them. In Philadelphia, for example, uh, they're all over the place. Uh, there's, a, there's a big historic district known as Old City. Mm -hmm. And then there are these blue signs with gold lettering that will tell you the structure, the street, um, wh whatever it is uh, and why it's important, the park. And That's actually a Pennsylvania stop. thing. Is it a Pennsylvania it? thing? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we always take the time to stop and read them. We're both into history. It's why we enjoy traveling together and going to museums together. So it's something that we like to do. Uh, but I never really thought of it like, you know, just how, how you explained it. It was just something that we did be, because we were curious. I never really thought about how uh, more meaningful, I guess, it was making. Now it seems dumb that I didn't think of that. Um, but no, yeah, the, the no. impact that it has on those experiences is because especially in your own city, you know, yeah. you're not yeah. you're not going with the mindset that you're traveling and you're going to learn. We're just like, yeah, you know, we're walking around. Why not read this black? And, and we then read every single one we cross. Well, I want to yeah. add to this because this is so memorials and, you know, cities really tie into what I studied in landscape architecture because memorials are kind of um, basically an artist representation or a landscape architect's representation of art in the physical form that you experience as you walk through. Mm -hmm. And I want to, you mentioned Berlin uh, did you go to the Holocaust Memorial? I think that's actually what my whole episode is about. Okay, yeah, okay. the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, and I, yeah. I have also been there. And that whole thing, each 
basically that memorial is each one is about the size of a coffin and you walk through and they basically get taller and taller as you go through and it represents and the ground dips too so suddenly you're kind of very very viscerally overwhelmed by the space yeah Yeah, and you're in the middle of the city and it's about a two acre site in the city that five acres Five acres, two and a yeah, half hectares. Yeah, it's huge. Hectares. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'll stop interrupting. Yep. No, but it, I mean, chime in at any point because it is the feeling you get as you're walking through. Basically, it represents the amount of Jews that were killed with the height of each block. And then you are, when you get to the middle of it, you can't see any of the city anymore. You don't really hear anything. You're blocked off from the rest of the world. And all you feel is this imposing block of granite around you that represents death. And the the main point of this is every single memorial, every single thing you experience as you are traveling has design intent associated with it. Mm -hmm. There is a reason it is the way it is. It's not just happenstance that it became that way, or I should say it's rarely happenstance. And if you think about that, it makes your experience a little bit more intriguing because then you're like, oh my God, now I understand why this is that way. It's not just... I'm experiencing it, which is a major part of it, but knowing why you're experiencing it and how you're supposed to experience it is very different. Yeah. that's Having that philosophy, Elliot, is what makes more, life more beautiful uh, in almost every way, right? Look, mm-hmm. Seeking beauty, uh, looking for the details of life, uh, you know, whether it's um, like Marcus Aurelius has this saying where he's like looking at a loaf of bread and he sees like the divots, unintentional divots in the bread. And just says that, you know, even that can be beautiful when you really look at it, that you have this bread and it's designed a certain way by chance. And so it, it is uh, amazing. And I think you'll have an enjoyable experience with just life in general here. Now we're getting philosophical. We're turning into a very from well, travel art, to art. There is a lot of philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy in art. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and too, I mean, I think that people... You know, there's a thrill of the unknown when you're traveling and you want to, some people want where they are to be kind of explained to them. Other people want to figure it out for themselves, but you know, it can be, it can be thrilling and it can be really scary to be somewhere where you just have no idea where you are and let yourself loose in into that space you know when i was in when i lived in berlin i was in i was at that age where it was just like i wanted the world to just come at me mm-hmm. and i have lost some of that you know since i really dug in roots with my my family and my life you know it's it does make kind of just dropping myself in the middle of nowhere you know planning on on booking a hostel somewhere and just kind of going on my rail pass you know, that's not quite as appealing as it once was. It's a little scarier now. But recognizing that the world has still been plotted out, you know, the maps have been plotted out. And so it's never entirely unknown. And whether that is a little disappointing or makes you feel safer when you're traveling, I think that there's really something to that, you know, mm-hmm. that that you can walk into a city that you've never been to before and feel absolutely lost and all the thrill and fear that comes from just getting lost somewhere. And that is someone's home. Mm-hmm. They know it. 
you know, they, they see every cobblestone on the street and they feel like that feels really comforting and safe to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know Cleveland, but I know Boston and yet I, yet, I don't know Cleveland yet. We moved to right before the pandemic started. So I know that there's, there's more to know, but what I do know, I've actually like, like I drive around to get lost here and it's nice because there's so much wide open space and it's really, really beautiful and there's a ton of national park here and so you know when my son wouldn't nap and i just had this this you know infant in the back seat we would just drive and i got to know the city actually pretty well like or you know my little piece of it by just driving and turning off my google maps and just going mm-hmm. and it's been you know i guess that's the closest I've, i'm getting to kind of <laughs> like getting my wanderlust out yeah, yeah. Well, I'm in your club because I I also have a I have a twelve week old, so uh, we're not traveling much. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. I I feel very enlightened right now. I know. It, it, oh, I'm glad. this is this is something that's kind of out of our comfort uh, right. our comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's such a new area. I and and something tomorrow as you were just talking about mapping it out. I'm I'm mm-hmm. thinking of like well, how great would it be to do like an art tour of of Europe and like have this mapped out, uh, you know, plan this mapped out route to hit some of the most significant pieces of art. And, you know, I guess even saying that, like you can curate it significant in what way, you know, you could Mm -hmm. have the most significant Renaissance pieces, World War II pieces, whatever it may be. And then you could even do that in the United States doing an art tour. Definitely. Tour of landmarks in New York city. There you go. I think, I think even, even simpler is if, I mean, we don't all have the ability to travel right now because it's still a global pandemic, but you might be able to go to your local museum and have like a mini travel trip. And if you, if you do a little bit of research or do as Tamar suggested, go in not knowing and find a piece that speaks to you, that is a little vacation right there. Yeah. There's, there's thinking, you know, in my head, as I plan my trips, some of the things that's like, what restaurants am I going to hit? Uh, What... Uh, landmarks do I want to see? Are there what are there what pieces of art are at this destination that I might be able to include? Like, am I going to be close to any based on where I'm going? Like, you can now. I'm thinking now how I can incorporate art into my overall experience and maybe consciously visit some of these pieces because I'm sure a lot of them are located near certain uh, tourist destinations anyway. And then you have the luxury of exploring on your own and coming across different things by being a black reader. Yeah, black reader. <laughs> yeah. readers unite. Yeah, I, know. I feel like we got to create a subreddit for that. Yeah. <laughs> Tamar, uh, we want to thank you for coming on the show, and we didn't actually tell you this, but we have a rapid fire round where we oh, have goody. questions we're going to ask you. Yeah, uh, but before we jump into that, uh, take a minute to share where people can download your podcast, find your website, all of those good things. Oh, sure. Um, so the website is thelonelypalette.com. Um, palette, P-A-L-E-T-T-E, uh, and, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. So whether you get them on Spotify or Apple podcasts or overcast is my, my personal favorite, um, just search for the lonely palette and it's a little icon with a Mona Lisa with headphones. Um, and, uh, my Instagram is at the lonely palette. My Twitter handle is at lonely palette, like me on Facebook, blah, blah, blah. Um, All right. <laughs> but anywhere, <laughs> you know, anywhere, like the, the website is the best place to kind of get a sense of what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. You want to get it started, Bob? 
Tamar, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Um, my lonely planet, actually, and how my spine got all broken when I was traveling by myself in uh, like the spine to my lonely planet. Wow. Oh, <laughs> true. Sorry. <laughs> I, you, I was like, Whoa. Are, are you hiking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, all broken. It was just, uh, it was just a mess. <laughs> You're doing really well. Um, but uh, yeah, like, like to me, traveling was backpacking. It was like, it was like a very specific time in my life. And mm -hmm. it was also pre-smartphone. And, you know, I just, I had my lonely planet that I, you know, marked up and that told me where to go. And it got all messed up. And you go to hostels and everybody's like competing over whose lonely planet is more battered. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so that to me was like traveling because yeah. I was by myself and it was the really vagabond. exciting. The yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, related to that, what travel book had the biggest influence on your life? Well, definitely. I mean, I, I hate because obviously the Lonely Palette was kind of named for the Lonely Planet. Like it was a way to kind of make art as accessible as the Lonely Planet makes the world. Um, but travel book, I mean, that like I, I suppose I should say on the road, but I never finished it. So I'll, I'll just say, you know, my, my Lonely Planet. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Would you rather battle food poisoning in Mexico or get lost in Thailand? Get lost in Thailand, no question. <laughs> because I had food poisoning in Greece and it okay. was it was the three worst days of my life. Okay. All right. Tell us one thing travelers should not do. <laughs> um, eat the cheaper euro in Greece. <laughs> I was with I was with this girl that I met at a hostel and we were like we were in Crete and we were about to get on the bus to come back to to take the ferry to come back to um, Athens and uh, we both saw Euro stands and I had had one already a couple days earlier and it was like the the best thing I'd ever eaten and she, they were like opposite each other on the street and one was ten cents cheaper. And I was like, <laughs> deal, done. And I ended up having to stay in a hotel, talk to, you know, like, like order a doctor, like the, the, the hotel um, concierge got a doctor to come the entire, like that food poisoning ended up costing me like 500 bucks. Wow. So it's the All worst right. dime I've ever saved. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a great story. Uh, and lastly, uh, what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago? 10 years ago. Um, go easier on older people because it's not that bad when you get there. In fact, it's better. And, you know, like be okay with, with who you are right now, but it's okay to get older because yeah. you do actually get smarter okay um well, and said, calmer I agree with that fully yeah, yeah i agree with that that fully what yeah. is, i this quote is i don't know who it's attributed to but youth is wasted on the young yeah no kidding <laughs> wait we we did not get to talk about nfts should we do like a little bonus time if you're listening to this uh you know and you hate nfts please uh or love out. them I'm just very curious to hear tomorrow, you know, you're, you're, 
one minute whatever spiel on what you think and where it's headed and maybe i can tell you what i think as well Elliot. i have no idea where it's headed um i don't think like there is kind of unlimited money to throw at all this but it's not unlimited per person and what what i appreciate about it is that a creators are getting paid mm -hmm. um and that's something that that you know you you can be a starving artist and be a success simultaneously and that's really like that sucks um and that the idea that that they do get payment ultimately you know that that kind of yeah. trickles back to them is i think is a good thing um this is a you know this is a phase like this bubble yeah can't stand man like that's it's, this isn't gonna stay this way yeah so i think we we're gonna have you know sooner than we think we're gonna look back on this and be like well that was weird let's try yeah. to dissect what, what it all was i i'm viewing this as like a brand new avenue for art so i i, I mm -hmm. guess i have a different opinion i think it is i think it's here to stay and i think like ultimately you have this new area for people to express themselves through art Mm -hmm. And there will be NFTs, aka pictures, drawings, paintings uh, that are worth more based on the history, story of the artist, whatever it may be. And then most of them, a significant majority of the NFTs are going to be worthless. They're going to be, you know, some random person who wants to enter. They make their picture. Kind of like art. And right? no one buys it and no one buys it and no one cares. Exactly. But then you yeah. have the person yeah. again with the story who puts it on and everybody wants it. But there's only one copy, right? Or I, and yeah. I guess maybe that artist will make more. So I, I see it as another avenue similar to like baseball cards or Pokemon cards. Some are worth more than others. And, you know, people trade Nikes and they're worth thousands upon thousands of dollars. I just see this as one more thing uh, yeah. similar to it that. It does seem trade, more right? closely related to the art market, though, than, you know, like what it's saying Which, about digital art and the art of our moment and the creators of our moment. You know, that's that's something to explore. And I think that can be interesting. But I think what what you're talking about in particular is is a really inflated art market for mm -hmm. this one hot commodity. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see it burst pretty soon yeah. or not. What do I know? You know, I, I it just seems like there's no way that this kind people can throw this kind of money at so much crap and yeah. not yeah. think that that's going to back up on us eventually. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. So for the uninformed like me, I did not know what NFT stood for. It stands for non-fungible token. Basically, it can't be replicated. It's a cryptocurrency. So the thing that I think is interesting about NFTs, and they, they could be applied to non-digital items as well in the future, and there are a few cryptocurrency slash blockchain companies trying to apply these to physical objects so that you know for certain that it is like an original Nike Air Jordan or it is an original Prada bag. That, I think, will be here to stay in the future. And it won't be necessarily related to art, but it'll be more related to commodities. Well, and this also already exists. And, and you know, if you read Walter Benjamin's A Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, that was written in 1936. I mean, this is, you know, one of the first times that a philosopher is really sitting down and talking about what it means to have an original what it means for something to be an original versus a replication of something. What does it mean for art that only becomes in its reproducibility, like a photograph, you know, that, that you can have multiples because there is no original there's, it's a film negative, yeah. you know? So what does that mean for film? What does that mean for, um, you know, for art in general, if it is accept, if more people can access it, 
And that's not quite, you know, the same issue with, with NFTs because, um, you know, people do pay for it. Like it's not just something that gets easily disseminated to everybody. It's kind of taking that dissemination and suddenly like swallowing it back up and making it, you know, making it a, a, a commodity. But the idea that, you know, the story, the fiction that we tell ourselves that this JPEG is the original, but the one that you have is, is that's free and worthless versus the exact same one that got paid millions of dollars for. I mean, I don't know how much longer that fiction is going to, yes. you know, people are just going to blindly believe it because it's making them money. Yeah. Well, the only people who are trying to sell you on NFTs are the ones that are trying to make money off of NFTs. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know how much of that is really to do with like the profundity of art, <laughs> but you know, but it is still speaking to our moment, which I think always has kind of its, its moments of profundity. So, yeah. Interesting. All right. Please. We will let you get back to macaroni art uh, with your child now. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you uh, for coming on the, the podcast today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I I really mean it sincerely. Like, I learned a lot. Uh, oh, I'm so today. glad. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Likewise. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. You too. You too. My son is currently making a, you know, a Jackson Pollock out of ketchup right now. Right. So <laughs> go check on that. <laughs> thank you. So I think I'm going to become an artist. But you are an artist. This is <laughs> Thank art. you. No, I, I love that. I've always been into art in some way, but it's always been more towards like Renaissance art. That's sort of what art is to me. When I think of art, I think of Renaissance paintings and the um, and, and sculptures like, like Michelangelo and Raphael. Like that's mm. automatically my mind goes to. And this was so insightful because now I really came out of this with new perspective of modern art and what art means in general yeah uh, I, I loved the conversation with tamar today i did too it was it was really interesting I, yes I, I did i didn't think we were going to talk about nfts that long i didn't realize how long we were going to talk about you know the scribbles in jackson pollock uh, right but it, it does it has it has new meaning i'm going to see next time i go to museums or any kind of art exhibit i'm going to look at it very differently and hopefully you will too yeah so rome when i was in rome and i was in that museum i i that's where i really I just loved it because you're looking at uh, events of history frozen in time. It's just, yeah. it's just so cool. Yeah. So thanks for listening. And if you are listening, still listening to this, which I hope you are, uh, give us a rating on iTunes, follow us on social media. Uh, we do have on our Instagram link, uh, buy me a coffee where you can donate a little bit of time or a little bit of money so that we can have some coffee for our episodes. We do have merchandise on our website. It's pretty awesome. And share this with your friends, family. We really appreciate you as a dedicated listener. Stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next week.